have them here, so don't worry. <laughs> so Romans chapter 1, and we are going to be focusing in on just verses 6 and 7, but as they are uh, right in the middle of a pretty long sentence, I'm going to go ahead and read those uh, uh, verses leading up to it that are part of the same sentence. This is uh, familiar to you, but it's introductory to the book, and it's uh, important for what we're going to be covering. So Romans chapter 1, I'm going to uh, read for us, starting in verse 1 through verse 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do take this moment to ask you to calm our hearts and our thoughts that we might lift our thoughts to you, that we might Ponder what you have here in your word for us. Your word is truth, and we want to know it. It's living and active, and we want to be moved by it, and your spirit is at work within us using your word in our lives. And so we do pray this morning that as we read and proclaim what is written here, as we discuss what is in your word, that you would have your way in our hearts, that we would see clearly that we would be struck in our own hearts with our for these truths today. Convict us where we need that. That you would strengthen us by your Spirit. We want to be preparing our hearts already. We want to be thinking about what Christ has done for us, even as we are reminded about our great need for the gospel. So I pray that you would. So I the question, what do you boast in? We don't have to look very far. Maybe it's testing or whatever. We could boast in anything, can't we? And the gospel and grace and peace and the call of Jeremiah 9, 23, boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast the earth. For in these things, as Christians, we must only boast in Christ because he has accomplished our salvation. The... Letters of the day in the, in the first century, love your son at the end or whatever. And the letters of that day, of course, from the letters, so you saw the address, you know, it would have very simple element. And of course, you take that, so you have it expanded that he, he has interest in talking about the gospel and, and for Gentiles that have been called to minister to verse of our new ownership, Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, he's never been to Rome. And so what authority does he have to, to be an apostle to the Gentiles? He, he was set aside specifically by Jesus to go in mission to bring the gospel to Gentiles, all the nations around uh, the world. And that includes, by the way, you who are in Rome. 
And thus, what's my authority to speak to you? Why should you listen to me? Why should you care about this letter that's written from a person you hardly know? It's because Jesus has called me to be the apostle to you. And so he establish, establishes his own uh, right to speak, his own authority to be able to write. And we're glad he did because they held on to this letter, of course. And we have the book of Romans as a result. And uh, so we're glad that they listened and we're glad, glad they received the letter. And, of course, God was divinely working. His word would never be destroyed anyway. But, but humanly speaking, he needed to indicate to them why he gets to tell them what to believe and what to do because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. So we're talking about new ownership here and we're talking about ownership by Christ. Look what it says there in 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Some of your versions may translate that differently, the called of Jesus Christ. The idea there is ownership, called to belong to him. We're called to be his. And so he's talking about ownership there. Now, we may not think in terms of human ownership, who owns you. If people get a little offended, you know, if, if uh, you know, we make too strong a claim about ownership on another human, right? Even a spouse, you know, that's, that's my wife. She belongs to me. Well, wait a minute. You think you own her, right? So it raises questions in our minds about human ownership. But the fact is we are all owned by someone. We, we are in the possession of someone. We are enslaved to someone. We belong to another. And, and we, we talk about this, by the way, when we sing about or when we talk about Jesus as our Redeemer. The idea of redemption is that we were enslaved, we were under ownership by someone else, and Jesus paid a price, and the result is ownership is transferred. So now he owns us because he bought us. And so even when we talk about redemption, we're talking about ownership. And that's kind of what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we are all owned by someone. And what Paul is saying is speaking to these Christians in Rome. He says, you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He is your new owner. We all start this life in slavery to sin. That's the way we are born. In slavery to the elementary principles of the world, Paul will say in Galatians chapter 4. And then he'll, he'll continue on in verses 4 and 5 when he says, But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we really are His property. We have been bought with a price, and so we are not our own. We belong to Him. We have new ownership, and Jesus is our new owner. There's a word I kind of blew by there, and that was, that was on purpose. He says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Some versions will say, who are the called of Jesus Christ. This idea of calling is something that we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning as we're going through John chapter 3. You notice it's March and we've made it all the way into John chapter 3 in our Sunday school class. So we're cruising there also. We were talking about the idea of call, the calling and those who are called. 
And there are a couple of different ideas in the word calling. One is the idea, kind of what Woody did at the beginning of our service, right? Where he was in futility trying to call people in, right? <laughs> he was summoning people. Hey, we're in here and we're singing and come on in, right? And so did, did, did everyone obey that immediately? Well, no, and that's fine. And I'm not calling anybody out for that. It's a summons. It's like when you kind of idea of the call. And that's uh, kind of what, in, what is in mind when uh, Jesus says, many are called and few are chosen. I believe that's what he's talking about there. Many are invited. It's, an, it's a summons. But there's another kind of call. And that kind of call is illustrated in the naming of a child. When I called my son Gabriel, that was his name, right? He didn't have to debate and decide, well, eventually, maybe. It was his, son, it was his name because I gave it to him. I called him Gabriel, and so he's Gabriel. And by the way, Steph did have input on that. <laughs> it wasn't just me, but those are the two ideas of calling. One is a declaration. It is so because I said it is so. And the other one is a summons, right? And so we see those two different ideas. So with those two ideas in mind, let's look at our, our words here again, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ or who are the called of Jesus Christ. Are these the ones who have been summoned, merely summoned? Come to Christ. Would you come to Christ? I summon you to Christ. Or are these the ones who have been declared to be so by God? Every time in Paul, when we read this word of called, it's a declaration of what God has accomplished already. He has done it. They are called to belong to Jesus Christ because God made it so. And thus, they are called of Jesus Christ. They have been designated so by God himself. And so the application for us, just of this short little verse, part of a sentence here, the application for us is this. As Christians, we must boast in Christ alone because he has made us his own. We have a new owner. We have a new master. We have a new Lord. It has been made so. Not merely summoned. He has accomplished it. And so we belong to Him. And so our boast need not be, should not be, must not be in anything else. Our boast must be in Christ alone. Not in what we've accomplished. Not in what our hopes are. Not in, uh, not in our uh, expectations of the future. Not in anything else that has to do with us or anything else. Our boast, our identity is in Christ Himself because He has made us His own. And we continue reading. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Christians should boast in Christ because of our new relationship. We have a new relationship to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. First of all, we are loved by God. There's a powerful verse that if you don't have it memorized yet, you need to. It will encourage your soul. Romans chapter 5. Turn there if you would. Romans chapter 5. By the way, I've already encouraged you to memorize the whole book of Romans, so you'll eventually get here, right? You know, you're going to memorize 5-8 anyway in your regular course of memorizing these 16 chapters. I say that, I say that jokingly, but I do. There's value in it. And, and what a joy to be in Romans every single day and have it scrolling through your brain. Try and, try and do it while you're falling asleep and you will wake up with it still scrolling in your brain. Okay, memorize God's word. 
Memorize even the book of Romans. Not just the memory verses that we put up. That's, that's just a taste. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to keep reading there. Uh, actually, I want to read the verses that came before it. This puts it in context. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is power there. Jesus didn't come to die for the righteous. He didn't come to die for people who had it together and therefore would be worth owning. He came and died not for those people. He came and died for sinners. Even while we were at enmity with Him. We have Jesus coming to die for us. Keep turning in Romans to Romans chapter 8. I just want to read some verses to us here. Romans 8 will convince you of God's love if you are not already convinced of God's love. But I want to read to us just the end of Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Talking about believers. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are in a relationship with God where He loves us to that extent. That is what we boast in. Another aspect of our relationship, going back to Romans chapter 1, is that we are saints of God, holy ones of God. And that, that might be a little bit of a weird statement because we have grown up with the idea that a saint is someone who is extra super holy and have been declared to be saints by the church, the Catholic church, for example, saint this and saint that, or someone throughout history who perhaps performed miracles. It's a very unique, special class of very, a few people. That's kind of the idea that we, that we grow up with. But listen to this, that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. You ever read first Corinthians? 
extra special class of people indeed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. To those people with those kinds of problems that they were wrestling with in their church. This was not a a church that you would probably, you know, if you had choices of what churches to go to, and they didn't have a lot of choice in those days, you might not choose to go there because it was a little wild, some of the things that were going on. And yet to that church, Paul could write and say, believers, you are saints. You are saints, declared to be so by God himself, saints of God, set apart, holy Because God has qualified us to be so. Because He has set us apart. The idea of holy, of holiness, which is in that word saints, means to be set apart. To, to be set apart from the world for service to God. And that has moral implications, obviously. To be set apart from the world means that we look less and less like the world. We are set apart for Him not set apart for the world. We are set apart for Him and set apart to serve Him. And so we are committed to Him. We are called by His name. We have been declared to be so by God Himself. And so we are saints of God. And so the saint is not just an extra special class for a few people who have done amazing things in some, re, uh, some distant antiquity. Those who are called saints of God have been made so by God Himself and what He has done as He in Christ has set you apart from the world for service to Him. And so we, believers, are saints of God. Every last one of us. Talk about a new relationship. Talk about something new that God has done. Look back at verse 7 of Romans chapter 1. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints... There's that same word again, called to be saints. Some versions say called saints, declared to be so by God. This is that same word that Paul just used a moment ago to say that uh, we who are in Christ have been called of Jesus Christ, have been called to belong to Him. He says here that we are called saints. And I remind you of that great truth of why are we saints? Is it because we have made ourselves so? Is it because we have adequately, adequately cleaned up our lives? We've gotten things together enough that someone could look and say, yeah, he's, he's kind of passable. I guess we could call him a, a saint. Is it something we've accomplished? Here, they're, they're called saints. They are called saints. Some versions, the called saints. And that's important for us to remember because that word called, this particular form of that word called is used only 10 times in the New Testament. And except for that one where Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen, those other nine all referred to those who are believers because they have been declared to be so by God, because he has accomplished it. He has accomplished it. We were talking in our Sunday school class this morning in uh, the book of John about other religions and how you can join a religion, 
Kind of like you can, you know, join the Boy Scouts or whatever, right? You, you sign up and you maybe make a pledge or uh, you say you're going to be that or you go through their rituals of entering into it, right? And it's just a, a, a club you joined. It's something that you added into your life. And being a Christian is something very different. Not just because it's an entire life commitment. That is true. We have a new Lord now. Jesus is our Lord. I am no longer my Lord. No one else is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And so it is, it is a, an entire life commitment. That is certainly true. But there is something that happens. There is a statement made by God. There is an action performed by God whereby He causes someone to be a saint, to be a Christian, to be born again. It's an actual reality that has been changed, brought about, caused by God Himself. They are called saints. Not because they made the grade, but because God made it so. It has been declared to be so, and so it is. Just as my son's name is Gabriel. Because I said so. And it made it to happen. They have been called by God. And so this is how Paul could say of the Roman Christians that they are called saints. He himself has accomplished in them that setting apart for himself. He has declared that they will be set apart from the world for himself, for service to him. And it is the result of his action. He has called them. And so what's the application for us? Well, as Christians, we must boast in Christ alone because of this new relationship with the Father that he has given to us. Our boast is in what He has done for us. If your unbelieving friends perceive that you, Christians, somehow think you're better than them, I, w- I would encourage you that perhaps you might examine this aspect of your own heart. They may think you're better than them because they don't like the fact that you're a Christian and you don't do some of the things that they do and you do good things that they don't. This may be purely in their heart. Or it may be that there is some aspect in us of boasting. I'm, I'm set apart for God. I'm set apart for the service of God. I, couldn't, I, I wouldn't do such a thing. I'm a Christian. You see how there's a subtle difference. There's a subtle redirection of that boasting towards myself, towards me and what I'm going to do and what I, what I certainly wouldn't do because of who I am as opposed to a boast in Christ and what He has done. Yes, I am set apart for God because He did it. And so, no, I can't do that thing because God God owns me. I'm His. There's a difference in our boasting. And our boast must be in what God alone has accomplished. And so, our non-Christian friends should observe in us a, a humility even when we don't do the things perhaps that they do or perhaps when we do things that they would never think of doing, self-sacrificial, loving things, there still should be a humility connected to it because we are only where we are because God has accomplished it on our behalf. Thirdly, we move on to the second half of verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I said earlier that a uh, letter of this day would state the, the author of the letter, Paul, Brennan, to mom, right? The recipient is stated next, and then greetings. Well, the word that is used here, grace, looks a lot like that word greetings. 
It seems like to Christians, and maybe, maybe Paul was the one who came up with this, but it seems like Christians took that, that word greetings that everybody used, and they said, this sounds a whole lot like the grace of God. And so they changed it for themselves, and the way they use it when they greet one another is not just greetings, but a word that sounds very much like it in Greek, grace to you grace to you so that their greeting would always be centered upon the grace of God. And the grace of God we're talking about here is favor from God. I guess I should tell you what your blank is, give you a blank and let you to guess it. You'll never guess it, by the way. It's not alliterative or anything like that. Christians should boast in Christ because of our new expectations, because of our new hopes. First of all, we have favor from God. This is a blessing. Again, this is, this is the part of the greeting where Paul is essentially praying a blessing upon the people who are receiving this letter when he says grace to you and peace from God, right? He is essentially blessing them. But I want to draw attention to what the blessing exists of. First of all, he, he says grace to you. Grace. God's favor. May God's favor be upon you. May blessing from God be yours. May you know God's smile upon you. What an encouragement. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to receive a letter like that that starts off spelling out the gospel and when it comes to you, grace to you. May you know God's smile. May you know God's favor. And by the way, he's going to spend 15 and a half more chapters Spelling out what grace looks like. The grace of God. A gift from Him. Favor from Him that He shows upon those who are undeserving. Remember who Christ died for? It wasn't the righteous people. It wasn't the good people. Who did Christ die for? Sinners. That's us, by the way. He died for us. That is the favor of God. And so He is praying for that very favor upon them. The grace of God. Christianity, by the way, puts on display the grace of God. Christianity, when you think about what the gospel means, when you ponder specific aspects of the gospel, when you communicate the gospel to people, when you meditate it on it yourself, when you try to communicate it, when you believe it, when you live according to it, all of it focuses on, highlights, emphasizes the grace of God at work. That God would bring salvation to people like us. Even when we discuss difficult theological topics, even when we wrestle through uh, dif- difficult passages or hard situations in our lives, Christianity holds up the grace of God, the favor of God, and we depend upon the favor of God. There is no room in Christianity, there is no room in the gospel for what I will accomplish for myself. The message of the gospel is despite what I have accomplished for myself, which is to earn judgment from God. The grace of God is a blessed and wonderful thing. And when Paul concludes his letter here, he wants to call that to their attention and he wants to pray God's favor on them. Grace to you. And he continues, peace from God our Father. So our expectation, first of all, is favor with God. We now have favor with Him. 
We've been brought into that position where he does smile upon us because we are in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. His righteousness has been applied to us. So God smiles upon us in Christ. We have his favor and we have peace, peace with God. Whereas we used to be at enmity with God, that our, and there are two aspects to that enmity too, by the way, maybe we were shaking a fist at God before we came to Christ. Perhaps that's the case. That's not actively the case with everyone. But some of us were very clearly at enmity with God. We hated Him. And we've been brought into peace with God. But much more importantly, and what is always the case, for the unbeliever, their sin has made God to be their enemy. So that God has such intense displeasure towards the treason of the unbeliever that we might be considered to be His enemies. And it's in contrast to that that we have peace from God. So what a, what a joy that we would no longer be at enmity with God. We would no longer be at that distance from Him, that we would no longer be the target of His wrath, but instead that we would have peace with God. I want to take us on a little journey. We're going to flip through Romans very quickly. But the word peace occurs quite a few times in the book of Romans, and I want to look at just a few of them because it sort of tells the gospel story. Chapter 2 and verse 10. This is talking about those who obey God. Those who are perfectly obedient to God. What what do they deserve? Look at verse 10, chapter 2. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Well, that's great. That's a great way to start. Except that that's not the last time the word peace is used. Look across the page to chapter 3. And if you see in the middle of your chapter 3 there, trouble. Because who obeys God? Nobody. Nobody has obeyed God except Jesus Himself. All the way down to look what we see in verse 17. Now let's start up in verse 15 so we can get a little bit of context. Their feet are swift. Whose feet? This is a description of everyone, by the way. This passage is a description of what's in the heart of every person, despite what it might look like on the outside. Every unbeliever. Look at this in verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. The way of peace they have not known. So we're in trouble. We saw over in chapter 2 and verse 10 that those who obeyed God, what do they get? Glory and honor and peace. That's a great thing, right? Except that no one does it. No one does it. Fortunately, the story is not over there because we keep on flipping and we get to chapter 5 and verse 1 because God didn't leave that alone. Remember that great section that's in our memory verse from chapter 3 about, about the, uh, the, the, the blessing, the righteousness of God that's now been manifested apart from the law? Look what we see in chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ and in Christ alone do we have peace with God. So that that enmity that we have created in the heart of God and in a manner of speaking with our own disobedience, with our own treason against Him, that wrath that is due us has been poured out on Christ. And that enmity that was due to us has been now placed on Christ so that we instead have peace with God. Look how he continues. Uh, I, I, I could continue reading there, but he's talking about this access that, that we have by faith uh, into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have hope in this life. 
And so there is hope to be found in Christ. There is peace with God, but it's only to be found in Christ. Keep turning and go to chapter 8 and verse 6. Because how do we live our Christian life now? God has provided the way for sinners to have peace with God, but now that we who have peace with God uh, live in this world, how are we to continue to live? Well, he says in verse 6 and points out, this is a truth about us, Christians. He said... He says, uh, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, which, by the way, is a description of what it means to be outside of Christ, to be those who are unbelievers, for those who are not in the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but, Christian, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. What do we have? How do we live? As Christians, our mind has been set upon the Spirit, and therefore we have life and peace. Even in this life, not just, not just some mystical concept of peace with God in the sweet by and by. We have that, but we have peace with God now because our mind has been set upon the Spirit and we have peace with God. So how do we relate to each other? Keep going. Chapter 14 and verse 19. Chapter 14 and verse 19. How do we relate with one another? Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. We have peace in the future with God. We have peace right now actively in our life with God. And we will see peace in our lives. And what does that peace look like? It doesn't always look like we might want it to. But it is rooted in peace with God. And it determines how we relate to one another as we pursue things that will lead to peace in our relationships. Peace in our church. And then keep on going. 1533. This great blessing. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. God is at work to establish peace with himself. Because we, traitors though we were, as, as we were, would never have sought it on our own and could not have done so had we wanted to. And so he himself has established peace. And thus he's called the God of peace. And so may this God of peace be with you. Go back to chapter 1. He says, grace to you and peace. By the way, that idea of peace is the Old Testament concept of shalom, which is, which is being at peace with God. Everything is well. Everything is well between you and God. Everything is well uh, in, in your relationships. Everything is well in your church. Shalom is, a, is a, a, an entire life of peace. Everything is well. That idea of shalom is what he has taken into the New Testament concept. And when he says peace to you, he's wishing... He's praying for, he's desiring that kind of peace where all is well. Even though circumstantially, all is usually not well. But the shalom of God overcomes that. It's not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon you feeling good about your situation. But it's a, it's a, it's a, a sense of well-being and blessing from God as His shalom is upon you and upon your relationships. And look at what he says here at the bottom of verse 7, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this is received from God. From beginning to end, this has been received from God. This calling by God that we would be made His own. This being declared saints, set apart for God, holy to Him, set apart for His service. That's been accomplished by God. All of this from beginning to end was accomplished by God. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is interesting. When we read in Jesus' words, when He speaks about what He has come to do, 
He speaks of it consistently as doing the will of his father. For example, John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, 38 through 40, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me and raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. There is perfect cooperation between Father, Son, and Spirit at work in bringing salvation. And this salvation is from God Himself. And so, what's the application for us? Well, again, it has to do with our boasting. Christians, where do we boast? Well, we're going to serve the Lord's Supper today. We're going to take communion together. This is an opportunity for us where we boast in Christ and what He has done what He has accomplished for us, the expectations we have for the future, the the peace that we have, God, now and in the future, the, the work that He's done for us in the past, we celebrate right here as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so let this be our boast. Nothing else but what Christ has done. And so if I could have the, those who are going to serve communion, come on up, please. The Lord's Supper is about all of these gospel blessings that we've talked about today. In Christ, we are under new ownership. We have a new relationship with God in Christ. And we have a new future, new expectations in Christ. I love how he concluded this section, concluded his greeting with grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That grace and that peace is from the Father and it is made ours by Christ because of what He has done. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's table. And so as a result, this is a celebration for believers. This is not for those who who don't know Christ. We, We want to talk to you and we want to talk to you about that gospel and we want to see you come to know Christ so that this would become your boast, that He would be your Lord, that He would be your Savior, that you would see Him and understand and submit, that you would believe in Him. But until you've done that, this is a celebration for Christians where we are boasting in what Christ has accomplished. And so if, if that's you and you don't know Christ, just let the elements pass. There's, a, there's nothing shameful there or anything like that. Well, we'd like to talk to you afterwards. And for believers, even as we're passing these elements around, be thinking, be pondering in your own heart. You, you probably have sin to confess. So confess it. And He forgives it. He forgives it. Because of this. Because of exactly what we're celebrating today. Because of Jesus' death on the cross in our place. And so confess your sin and rejoice. Boast even in your own heart about what Christ has done in the gospel. As the elements are passed one after the other, go ahead and hold on to uh, the bread until we all partake of it together and the same with the cup and we will partake of that together. So men, first of all, if you would uh, take up the bread, please. This depicts for us the body of Christ broken for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to 
this opportunity to celebrate the gospel, to celebrate what Christ has done for us, we come to the bread, which represents Christ's own body broken for us. That he would die in our place, that he would be the sacrifice for us, that he himself would bear your wrath, bear the penalty for our sin, bear that enmity that, that we had created in his own body. So we, we rejoice as those who are the recipients of this forgiveness that we have that is represented here in the body of Christ given for us. We rejoice and we thank you for this. And Father, even as we pass the elements and even as we ponder, help us to lift up in our own minds the gospel of Christ and take great comfort and joy. May, may the gospel itself be our boast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.